Hello, good morning. I'm Carolyn Bellamy, and our reading is from Matthew 7. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Chris Lugo. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I have been the curate slash assistant pastor with Dean over at Church of the Ascension for the past couple of years, and uh, my family and I, we reside in Arlington, Virginia, so we really love being able to come here. I really love being able to be with you guys this morning. Um, just recently, my wife and some friends of ours, we went to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and it's a beautiful museum. If you've never been there, it's an absolutely fantastic museum. It shows pictures and maps and numbers and all other kind of tactile things, but mainly the history and culture, and most importantly, the treatment of Africans and African Americans, how they experience life at the hands of others. And one of those people that I was introduced to was a person named Olauda Equiano. And Olauda was a West African who, along with his sister, were kidnapped at 11 years old. They were sold to three different slave owners, and they eventually were separated, never to see each other again. Equiano wrote a biography uh, detailing his life and the cruel and brutal treatment that he experienced along with his brothers and sisters. In his own words, he writes this, I feared I should be put to death. The white people looked and acted as I thought in so savage a manner, for I had never seen anything among any people such instances of cruel, cruel, brutal cruelty, and this is not only shown towards us blacks, but also to some of the whites themselves." This made me fear these people the more, and I expected nothing less than to be treated in the same manner. And Equiano continues by saying this, O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God, who says unto you, do unto all men as you would men should do unto you. This statement isn't something that just is about racial prejudice and the utter brutal treatment of Africans, but as Equiano rightly puts forward, that the fundamental aspect of the gospel is how it informs the way that we treat other people. 
And as we ventured through this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, that the way we treat people is actually a prominent theme, that we would be salt and light, that we would not treat those whom we are angry with with malice, but with reconciliation, that we would treat our spouse with the beauty of the covenantal marriage of God designed for and not as a contract, that we shouldn't treat people with payback, but seek peace, that we should treat our enemies with love and not contempt that you would not point out and judge what is in someone else's life until you have dealt with the log that is in your life. And if you asked for bread and someone gave you a rock, is that how you would want someone to treat you? And so, Jesus sums up all of these things by the way people should treat each other by saying in chapter 7, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this rule was a widespread principle in ancient ethics, so it's not surprising that you see something similar like it throughout history and in other traditions and other religions. Typically, it's called the golden rule. We've kind of all heard that in some way, shape, or form in school or when we've grown up. Now, the golden rule is traditionally traced to the Roman emperor Alexander Severus, who, though he was not a Christian, reputedly was so impressed by the comprehensiveness of this maxim of Jesus that he had it inscribed on his, in gold on the wall of his own chamber. So you don't even have to be religious to want or long for or even appreciate the, the being able to treat people with dignity and integrity. If you drive around Northern Virginia for any period of time, you see the creedal statements on front lawns describing how people long or yearn for and describing how people long for people of a variety of backgrounds, whether they're immigrants, their social, sexual orientation, their race, or their gender, that they should be treated fairly with dignity and integrity. And so Jesus gives us, as well as his disciples here, the depth of what he is saying with this statement. He says, whatever you wish, whatever here is a comprehensive word, it's showing you the full scope in everything, all. Whatever you wish, which is connecting the fact that you should do this, even when people, other people aren't doing it. Whatever you desire, whatever you want others to do to you, you should do to them. So think about it this way. Would you want someone to cheat you in school, in a business deal, on you buying a house? Would you want to be ridiculed by someone? Would you want to be gossiped about? Would you want someone to exclude you based on your race or your gender? Then why? Why on God's green earth would you treat someone else that way? If that is how you would not want to be treated, then how and why would we want to treat people that way? Here's what Jesus is not advocating when he says this statement, that two people who desire to, to harm each other must continue to do so. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying that if someone treats you poorly, that you should just do it back, just Go a little bit back in the Sermon on the Mount, an eye for an eye. Nope, that's not what I'm asking you to do. Meet your enemies and those you hate you by hating them back and making them your enemies. No, he says, love them. And Jesus has been giving us in the Sermon on the Mount and his earthly ministry examples of how to love our neighbor, even when they treat, treated him with contempt. And there are no loopholes, because then you have missed the point 
of Jesus' sermon and really the history of the Old Testament because Jesus says that treating people in love and how you would want to be treated fulfills the law and the prophets, right? Which means this, that the statement that Jesus makes sums up everything that's in the law and the prophets. Now, if you've ever read the law and the prophets, which many people have not, there are a lot of laws. There are a lot of code of ethics. And Jesus says, this sums up all of it. Now, this isn't new. Jesus later on is going to say in Matthew chapter 22, the verse that most of us know when Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with everything you have. And then love your neighbor as yourself, which underlies the ethical demands of both the law and the prophets. And even throughout the whole New Testament, We are invited to love other people the way our Heavenly Father has loved us. But it's so pervasive, right? In Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Then he starts listing commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. And again, if you read the book of James, James talks about the royal law, which is the law of Jesus, which is the law of love. And when he's talking about people discriminating against people who were poor, they were giving the rich people the high places and giving the poor people be like, no, 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 you need to go outside. He says, look, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This represents a complete departure from the Christianity we see on TV, on Twitter, on Instagram, and even in some of the churches that some of we have been in. So then why shouldn't we lie or steal or commit adultery? Why shouldn't we lie or cheat or steal or murder? It's because the Bible says so. No. Because it hurts our neighbor. And Jesus has made it clear that you cannot love your neighbor and gossip. You cannot love your neighbor and cheat them. You cannot love your neighbor and lie to them. Imagine you praying this, Jesus, deal with me the way that I deal with other people. Jesus, deal with me as you deal, as I deal with other people. And so Jesus continues, knowing that there are two ways for us to live. Now that we know this, Jesus says, great, now there's two approaches to life. There's two pathways that you can take. And Jesus does this to confront the crowds and the disciples with the decision. He's doing the same thing to you today. Now, Jesus has always kind of given us these kind of dichotomies, right? Sheeps, goats, wheat, chaff. Are you the younger son, the older son? There's two ways, two paths you can take. He says this, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate that is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Now, when Jesus uses this word enter, he's usually referencing the kingdom of heaven. And being that the sermon is really bracketed by the kingdom of heaven in his speech about the kingdom, he's saying, look, enter the narrow gate, enter the kingdom of heaven. It's an imperative, meaning that there's urgency, a call for immediate, uh, immediate action. Choose, but choose the narrow gate. But he tells us that first, the path or the gate, one path, is wide and it is easy, meaning that this path is attractive, it's self-oriented, there are few rules and restrictions. 
This might be where we profess Jesus or to be religious or spiritual. That Jesus' standards are admired, but they're not followed. C.S. Lewis describes the wide and easy way in saying this, I was soon altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. This should sound familiar. Nothing to be believed except which was either comforting or exciting. Many people flock to this kind of thought, whether it's spiritual. Many people flock to this kind of Christianity, where we want to believe what is comfortable and what is easy. So then Jesus naturally offers a second path. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The narrow gate. When I was six years old, uh, we lived in Germany. And one of the places that we went to was Hitler's Eagle's Nest. And this place sits uh, about six, over 6,000 feet at the top of a ridge. It's just this little lodge that sits on top of a ridge. And the way you get there is you have to get on a commercial bus. And it has to basically drive around the mountain like this. But it's on this super, super narrow road. And, of course, I got the, the window seat, because why not? And when he would take these turns, he would have to go slow, because the road was so narrow, when you looked out the window, you just saw straight down to the bottom of that, that mountain. And I was scared. But what's even more interesting is that I went to the website to be like, oh, because this was like 20 years, like a long time ago. So I went to the website, and this is how they describe the road that leads up there. It says that the road is impressive, but not for the faint of heart. This is what Jesus is calling you to. The narrow way is not for the faint of heart. Why? Because it's hard. The Greek word here is thalibo, which we use for thalipsis, which is often translated as suffering. It means to squeeze. It means to press. It means to crush. And it's often used with reference to sufferings due to the pressure of circumstances or the antagonism of persons. And here's what I'm telling you right now, is if you live to follow Jesus and take his worldview, you will suffer. Take the Sermon on the Mount alone. What Jesus says about anger, what Jesus says about divorce, what Jesus says about sexuality, what he says about marriage or anxiety or wealth or judging others. judging others. That alone, just seven things, will radically change the way that people treat you. And to live like Jesus, there are going to be difficult moments. Jesus isn't calling you to comfort. This is the thing we often get wrong in Christianity. We think we're called that everything is going right, which means I'm blessed. Everything's going wrong means I'm cursed. Jesus is saying, no, you want to come to the kingdom. It's going to be hard. And if his life was any indication of comfort, it would be a terrible advertisement. What Jesus pictures is entrance into the kingdom as being, on one hand, most desirable, yet on the other, not at all easy. To treat people the way you would want to be treated. This is, true, this is the true way to live, and it is narrow, and it is difficult, and it is demanding. 
This leads to fullness of life that you've been seeking, that your neighbors have been seeking, that you are longing for. So then why should you care? The, the easy answer would be like, well, because Jesus said so. But I think there's three reasons. Number one, we are all made in the image of God. Now, the image of God is corrupted and it is perverted, yes. But we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. We have a creator who made all of us in his image. And because we have been made by God, then we are precious to him. All of us, not some of us. And here's the problem, is we can get so easily consumed with self and self-flourishing that it's easy to forget the humanness of other people. We're seeing this in our news. We see this in our neighborhoods. Whether they are the homeless, black, Asian, Latino, or maybe an Afghan fleeing their country. Martin Luther King tells a story that in his book, Strength to Love, that I've always stood out in my mind. He was, tells a story about an automobile that was carrying several Negro basketball players, and they had an accident on a southern highway. Three of the young men were severely injured, and so they uh, called for an ambulance, and ambulance came, arrived on the spot. The man sees the guys. He says, I'm sorry, I don't service Negroes. And he gets back in the ambulance, and he drives off. So they had to get a friend to pile them all into the car, and they drove to the nearest hospital. And so when they get to the hospital, the uh, attending physician comes out and he says, I don't service N-word at this hospital. So then they had to take those guys and they had to take them 50 miles to a colored hospital where they all died. And this is what he said, Martin Luther King. The real tragedy of such narrow provincialism is that we see people as entities or merely as things. Too seldom do we see people in their true humanness. We fail to think of them as God's fellow human beings made from the same stuff as we molded into the same divine image. God made us all. We are precious to Him. We've all been made in His image. And the thing that Jesus is putting here is that's the underlying baseline that Jesus has here. Yes, you should treat people the way that you should want to be treated, but you should treat them because they're made in the image of God just like you. So the reason why you don't curse out that person is because they are made in the image of God. The reason why I don't sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend is because they are made in the image of God and because they are precious to God, I'm going to honor God and I'm going to honor them. The reason why I don't get all irate and I scream and yell and I put my finger out the window when I'm on I-66 because someone cut me off, that didn't happen on my way here, but... Instead of doing that, not only am I representing Jesus, but that person is made in the image of God, and who knows what's going on in their life? And so I'm going to honor them, not because their actions deserve that honor, but because they are made in the image of God. Luther says this, let this teaching be written upon everything that we look at and then stamped upon our whole life. But there's a second reason. How we treat people says something about us. What we do, the choices we make in the way we treat people says something about us. It says something about our values and our beliefs. Jesus has already alluded to this in Matthew chapter 5. Remember he said, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So basically Jesus is saying, look, let me, everything that I have put in you, let it shine to all. So when I see you and I see your good works, I see the Father. So that means if I treat you in a certain way, I'm always conscious of the fact, am I treating you not only as an image bearer, but am I treating you, how I treat you allows you to see Jesus or not. When you're at work or at school or college, the bank, the grocery store, sports games, your home, if we decide to be ugly or rude or unkind or just flat out a jerk, it does say more about us and what we believe and value. And Jesus made clear by this statement that our actions and our choices matter when it comes to our neighbors. Recently, I've been reading the Harry Potter books to my youngest, and we just finished book two, and at the end, Harry is troubled by the fact that he has a lot of similarities with Tom Riddle, who ends up being Voldemort, the bad guy. Hopefully, I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but that's what it is. Um, And so, what happens is is, uh, he's concerned because there's all these similarities, and he asked Dumbledore, he's like, but I'm, I'm just like him. And I love what Dumbledore acknowledges. He acknowledges that, yes, there are some similarities. But it is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. And every single person in this room has the freedom to choose how they treat someone. And finally, it is the way of Jesus. If you have not figured out by the Sermon of the Mount... This is the way of Jesus. If you take this Sermon on the Mount as simply behavior modifications, or, man, I need to be better with my anger, and it's just like this one thing, you've missed the point of Jesus' sermon. Jesus is not impressing upon us behaviors, but a way of life. This is a way of being. We are not simply embodying the teaching, we are being like the teacher. The goal wasn't to be able to say, we completed all the things Jesus asked us to. Because then we end up like the rich ruler, right? Oh, I've, held, I've done all the commandments. I've got it. Check, check, check. And the problem is, is the beauty of the Anglican way of life is not to come here and be filled with theology and preaching and good music and prayer to check a box off to make you feel good about yourself. It is for mission. That's what the prayers direct you towards. The Word the sacrament, mission. Be different. Go into the world. And so Jesus gives us a way that we can live, the wide, easy way or the narrow, hard way. But how can I carry it out? The answer is, you cannot do it. But when God enters your life at the moment of your conversion, a new life is created by which the new you, fed and nourished by the Spirit of God, can carry it out. And here's one important thing that I love about the fact that we have the Word and we have the sacrament is this. Jesus doesn't treat us the way we treat Him or the way that we deserve to be treated. This is the beauty of the Lord's Supper. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, which is one of my favorite chapters, because it describes who we are and then it describes who God is and what God does. He tells us that we are objects of God's wrath, something you don't want to put on your resume, that you're a sinner, that you're a trespasser, that you've, you've missed the mark, that you've gone over the line that God has set. And our allegiance wasn't to God but to the world. And yet, in love, verse 5, He shows us grace and mercy and unconditional love. All of the things that we do not deserve. 
yet out of his great love for us, gives us Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, increase the spirit of neighborliness among us, that in peril we may uphold one another, in suffering tend to one another, and in homelessness, loneliness, or exile befriend one another. Bring us to repentance for not treating people with integrity and dignity. Grant us brave and enduring hearts that we may strengthen one another until the disciplines and testing of these days are ended and you again give peace in our time. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.